Hey everyone, my name is David, one of the pastors here. And uh, this weekend I'm faced with a dilemma because I'm preaching uh, a message, but for two campuses. Um, preaching a, a message for Town Center. And if you're part of Town Center, you know we've been walking through the book of Revelation. Well, the Mariner campus is walking through a series on the family. And so I was faced with the dilemma, okay, how am I gonna cover both topics, book of Revelation and the family? So our passage today actually contains a family theme. It's about a mother and it's about her child and about a dragon. Uh, so, okay, so maybe not so much a family's theme, but uh, these are important themes that we're gonna be looking at in the book of Revelation. And I do think that they affect how we see our families, I hope. Um, but uh, we're gonna be looking at Revelation chapter 12 today. Now, I know Pastor Brad's talked about this before, but I am deeply indebted to the work of Daryl Johnson in his book, um, Discipleship on the Edge. Uh, Daryl Johnson's uh, spoken at our church a number of times over the years. Um, he's, he's done conferences. And this book, Discipleship on the Edge, uh, I think is such a gift to, to pastors. It's such a gift to the church because it opens up the book of Revelation and uh, in a very rich and devotional way. So, hey, if ever you want to walk through the book of Revelation on your own, I would encourage you to pick up Daryl Johnson's book, Discipleship on the Edge. The way he structures chapter 12, um, the way he unpacks it is really really been helpful for me today. I'm just laying that out. Um, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 12. So if you have a Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 12. It's right at the end of your Bible. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Uh, just so you know, that's the translation. So Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God, to his throne, and the woman fled to, uh, into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Is that a statistic or a symbol? It's a symbol, right? Now a war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short." 
And when the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman who had, uh, was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to a place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river and the dragon had poured that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious, and the woman went off. Uh, became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God, and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Jesus, we need your help. We need your, we need your wisdom. Please speak to us through your word today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow, what a passage. Now, if you've been making your way through the book of Revelation, you, you'll know that the book of Revelation is simply that. It's a revelation. It is an unveiling. It is an uncovering. It is a revealing of Jesus Christ, about Jesus Christ, uh, by Jesus Christ. It is a, it's a revelation that, that Jesus gave to one of his followers, a fellow named John. Uh, and John uh, receives this, this revelation while he's languishing on Alcatraz, well, it's called Patmos, it's this island where he's basically in, in prison. And John receives this, and it's a gift. It is a gift that Jesus gives to John because John's feeling discouraged, because John's being arrested. He knows that the early church, the church that had been established, was, was experiencing all sorts of suffering, all sorts of oppression from the Roman Empire. Uh, leaders have been rounded up, they've been arrested, they've been jailed, they've been persecuted, many of them killed. And in the midst of this heaviness, Jesus, in his grace, gives John this amazing revelation of himself. And the, the key point in giving this, this revelation is to remind John that, yes, everything may be seem to be spinning out of control, but hey, things are not as they seem. God is more at work in and around us than we realize. And I'll tell you, well, that's something we need to remember in our own context today. Okay, so another reminder too is when you read the book of Revelation, don't try to read it chronologically. If you read the book of Revelation and say, okay, then this happens and then this will happen and then this will happen, you're gonna go off in all sorts of strange directions. Um, what we get in the book of Revelation is what John sees. John describes what he sees. I see this and then I see this and then I see this. And boy, what he sees in, in, in Revelation 12 is pretty incredible. And I was wondering, I mean, how would he have seen it? Like, was it a vision? I don't think it was a dream. Was it a vision? Then I thought, I've never tried these. Maybe you guys have tried it. Have you ever tried those virtual reality glasses? My, my brother has, and he describes, he says, when you put them on, it feels like you're inside the very scene of this movie or whatever. Maybe that's kind of what it was. He's like given this incredible vision. Uh, in our passage what, today, what John sees is pretty bewildering, um, but it does tell us something pretty important about the world that we're living in. Um, what he sees actually is interesting. It, it touches on the past, what has taken place. It touches on the present, what is happening, and it touches on the future, what will happen. So you get those three dimensions, past, present, and future, all overlapping with this incredible, overwhelming imagery. 
And so chapter 12 is a series of rapidly changing scenes. Um, John looks, and what does he see? He sees a woman clothed with the sun. I mean, it's pretty amazing. He sees this woman giving birth to a child. He looks again. He sees a dragon, a scary dragon with uh, seven heads, seven crowns, ten horns. It's a wonky-looking dragon. Uh, he looks again, and there's a war in heaven. Uh, there's angels battling with other angels, and it keeps going. And so the big question, the big question we want to ask in chapter 12 is this. What in the world is going on? What is happening in this passage? Well, the context for chapter 12 is a war. Not just a war. It is the war, the cosmic war uh, that penetrates heaven and earth. So this is big stuff. And the, the text is trying to answer, I think, a, a really important question that a lot of people are asking. Um, okay, as Christians, we believe we believe that because of Jesus Christ, because of his life, death, and resurrection, we believe a decisive victory has been won over death. Death has been defeated. The things like cancer and suffering and, and uh, tragedy and sin and, and will not have the final word because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because of his death and resurrection and ascension. Um, we've been given a gift, and the gift is eternal life for all those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. This is what we believe. This is the gospel. This is the good news. So, in light of this good news, um, if evil has been defeated, then here's the question. Why is the world still in such a mess? Yeah, okay, I've been told that evil's been defeated. I look at my window, and there's still lots of evil out there. And so, why is there still injustice in this world? Uh, if God is so good, why is there so much evil going on? And, you know, this is a question, not simply if you're a Christian, this is a question that a lot of people have when they think about God. If God is good, why is there evil in this world, right? Well, this passage addresses this. Now, the whole context for uh, Revelation chapter 12 is actually the end of chapter 11, where John sees something amazing. He sees the temple of God, and in the temple, he sees the Ark of the Covenant, right? If you remember Raiders of the Lost Ark, you'll remember the Ark of the Covenant. But the Ark of the Covenant and the temple of God all symbolize the very presence, the very heart of God. And so these things have been opened. That's a key word in the book of Revelation. They've been opened. And so people are giving... Um, so John is getting an insight into the very heart, the very purposes of God. And then we enter into Revelation chapter 12, right? And in Revelation chapter 12, again, we come across this war. And it's a war that actually started. It's a war that started in heaven long, long ago. And that there's some point, heaven receives this amazing victory. Now, this is important to realize, but in the Bible, heaven and earth are intricately related. They are connected. There's a physical and spiritual realm to reality. They make up dimensions of reality. But here's the thing. Usually what takes place, what usually what happens on earth is a reflection of a greater reality that's taken place in heaven. But here you get the reverse. It's quite interesting. Um, what takes place in heaven is shaped by an event that takes place on earth. So let's look closer at this passage. Uh, in this passage, we have three main characters, right? Three main characters. There's lots of characters, but three main ones. You have the woman. 
Verse 1, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Okay? It says she was pregnant and crying out in birth pangs in the agony of giving birth. Okay? So, a great sign appears in heaven. A woman. Okay, what does this tell us? Well, we have to see this, that she is a sign. Okay, so what does it mean to be a sign? A sign, when you hear, you see the word sign, a sign points to a reality beyond the thing itself. And so a sign is representative. It, it points to a, a greater reality. And so here you have a woman who's clothed with the sun. Um, she's on the moon, under her feet the moon, and the crown on her head is 12 stars. Who, or better, what is this woman? What does she represent? Well. I think a good case could be made to say that she represents the people of God, both before Jesus and after. Um, she is Israel and she is the church. Now, how do we know this? Well, often in the Old Testament, Israel is referred to the daughter, uh, daughter of Israel, uh, the bride of Yahweh, the bride of God. And the sun, the moon, and the stars also would, would, would remind us of an echo of Scripture in, in Genesis 37 the story of Joseph. Uh, do you remember the story of Joseph? Joseph and his technicolor coat. Um, remember he has these dreams. He says, you know, he tells, he tells his family, I had this dream that, you know, um, you know, the stars and the sun and the moon were all bowing down to me. Um, basically saying my whole family's bowing down to me, which is not a good thing to say to your family. If you have dreams about yourself, you should just keep them to yourself. But anyhow, um, the stars represent his brothers, including himself. The sun, his father, Jacob, the moon, his mother, Rachel, and, 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 and he and his siblings represent the 12 tribes of Israel, the people of God. And this identity carries into the New Testament with those who put their faith in the true Israel, Jesus Christ, and becoming the newly constituted people of God, the church. And so the sign of the woman points, points to this greater reality, the church, the people of God. So now another sign appears. What is this sign? Well, the second sign that we come across is uh, the dragon, right? And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. Ah, uh, it's a dragon, but not just a dragon. It is a big, honkin', funny-looking dragon. Um, it's a great red dragon, powerful, whose tail can swipe away one-third of the stars. Um, now, if you're living in the first century and you hear the word dragon, especially if you know your, your Old Testament, and honestly, you need to know the Old Testament as you're making your way through the book of Revelation, what your mind would have gone to is the great mythical monsters that come, come up in the Old Testament, in particular Leviathan and Behemoth. And these monsters represent chaos and destruction. We read that this dragon is red. It's a color of blood. It's a picture of violence. Has seven heads, which is a number of completeness and authority. It's a pretty powerful thing. Um, it has ten horns, a symbol of strength, a diadem, um, which, you know, again, authority and power. Basically, it's one formidable creature. Reminds me of uh, the old Martin Luther hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, where where it goes, but for still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. 
on earth is not his equal. So this is one powerful creature. So again, but the creature is a sign pointing to a greater reality. So who or what is this creature? Well, in in verse 9, we find out who this uh, creature is. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. It is the devil, the Satan, the serpent of old. Now, hey, you hear the word serpent of old. Where does your mind go to? You, You think serpent of old. You think of maybe a text in the Old Testament. You think of the Garden of Eden, because we were in the Garden of Eden. Uh, The woman and the man were, uh, Eve and and Adam, were uh, deceived by the serpent. And so your mind would go there. The other thing your mind might go to is in in Genesis 3. Uh, In Genesis 3.15, there's a prophecy. And in the prophecy, there's the idea that there will come a day where there will be enmity, there will be war between the serpent and the offspring of Eve, the seed, that one day a child will come, a son will come, and this, this, this child will crush the head of the serpent. Serpent will lash out, but you will crush the head of the serpent. Okay, which brings us to the third character in our story, which is the child. Now, it's interesting. The woman is a sign. The dragon is a sign, both pointing to a greater reality. The woman points to the greater reality of the people of God. The dragon points to the greater reality of Satan, right, of the devil. The child is not a sign. The child is not a sign. Why is the child not a sign? Oh, because he is the reality. His identity is not a sign, but it is historical. But who is this child? Well, thankfully, we get a really important clue. And the clue is found um, in verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. The rod of iron. Boy, that sounds familiar. A rod of iron. Um, It's an echo. It's an echo from the Psalms. Psalm 2, verse 9, talks about the coming Messiah. Uh, Psalm 2 had always been seen uh, within Jewish context and within Christian context as a messianic psalm. That one whom God calls to fulfill his purpose will come, and this one will rule the world with a rod of iron. And we know that the Messiah is Jesus himself. He is the fulfillment of the promises of God, and he would be the one through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. And so what do we see next? Well, we see that the dragon tries to kill the child, right? We see that in verse 4. So when does the dragon try to kill this child, and why? Well, when? When? Well, we know when the dragon tries to kill the child. Uh, If it's historical, we know it's being played out where? We see it in Matthew chapter 2 with King Herod hearing from the Magi that the king of the Jews had been born. And Herod's like, I'm the king of the Jews. How could there be another? Herod tries to kill the child, right? And in doing so, he ends up killing all the children in, in, in Bethlehem under the age of two. And he sees this coming king as a threat. And so basically what we're reading in, in Revelation chapter 12 is, uh, took place on Christmas Eve. So Revelation chapter 12 is a Christmas story. It's a Christmas story. 
Um, you don't often hear it preached at Christmas time, but hey, it might be a good thing to preach this once in a while at Christmas time because you know what it does. It stops us from looking at Christmas as some sentimental thing about some little baby being born and the baby's cute and we ought to be cute, um, that kind of sentimentalism. It actually places a Christmas story in a much, much larger context. So hey, maybe we'll we'll take it on one Christmas. Um, okay. So that's when it happened, takes place on Christmas Eve. Now, why? Why does that happen? Why is the dragon, why is the evil one so bent on killing this child? Well, because evil knows what this birth means for the future of evil. Notice what happens to the child. In verse 5, we read that the child snatched away and taken up to God... Uh, and his throne, and it means through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that God accomplishes his great purposes through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and because of this, God's purposes, his designs, are complete. He is sovereign, and he has accomplished what he meant to accomplish. Okay, so... What does all this have to do with this war that we read about, right? This cosmic war. Again, there's lots of layers going on here. Well, in verse 7, look what we see. Now a war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down. He was thrown down. So there's a war in heaven. We come across this fellow named Michael, an archangel named Michael. Now, we, we learn about him, actually, in the Old Testament, in Daniel chapter 10. It seems like he was some kind of like guardian angel, princely angel, um, protecting the people of God. And so John tells us this battle is fought in this war in heaven. And the battle is won by Michael. And the, Michael and the angels defeat the dragon and his minions. So how, how, how did this battle, how did Michael defeat the dragon? Well, the war in heaven was won through an event on earth. Through the birth, through the life and the resurrection, the death and resurrection and ascension of the child. So you have to see this. A war in heaven was won through an event on earth. Wow. And that's why you read such an exclamation. Look in verse 10. Uh, Verse 10, it says, And then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death, right? And so we read that the victory has been won. The dragon has been thrown down. In fact, over and over again, it's like um, John's pretty pumped about this. Six times he mentions that the dragon has been thrown down. He's been thrown down. He's been cast down and down, down, down. He's he's been thrown. He's been thrown out of the, the throne room of heaven. And this leads us back to our question, though, because if, 
If all this has happened, if Jesus has won the victory, God's purposes have been accomplished, uh, the devil has been thrown down, has been defeated, all through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then the question still remains, why, when we look around, are things so bad? Why is there so much stuff, so much bad stuff going on? If, the, if evil's been defeated, why is the world in such a mess? Well, it's because the dragon's not happy. The dragon is ticked. He knows his number is up. He knows that he's only got a short time. And in this short time, he's gonna cause as much damage as he can. I was thinking, and this may not be a good example, but hey, it came to mind. Um, I was thinking, I had a buddy of mine who worked in Toronto, and he was like a manager for some, some big company. And he says, at this company, if someone gets fired, you know what happens? If someone gets fired, the moment they find out they're fired, um, people come into that person's office, they basically take his computer, they take everything, and they escort him and his things outside the building right away. And you think, well, why? Why not give him two weeks? Well, because if he's been fired and he, if he's ticked and he's still around for two weeks, he can cause a lot of damage before he's finally out. And I thought, well, that's kind of like this. Kind of, well, maybe it's not a good example, but I think it kind of fits. See, here's the thing. The dragon, he knows the gospel. The, the evil one knows the gospel. <laughs> he knows that, you know, his time is short. He knows that the victory has been won through Jesus Christ. And it's a warning to us because it, it seems like the dragon actually knows the gospel better than most Christians. Um, the, dra the dragon, he's in a desperate rampage mode because he knows his time is short. He can't get the child anymore, right? And so what does he do? He goes after the people of God. He goes after the church. And so the suffering of the church throughout the world is, is and we have to see this, is not indicative of evil's victory, but it's actually a sign of evil's defeat. Now, I just want to conclude with one last thing. I want you to notice the, the, the evil one's strategy in waging war and going after the church. Um, the evil one, the devil's not overly creative and doesn't need to be because the old strategies work really well. Um, so the dragon comes after the people of God in, in three main ways, we read. One, he accuses. He's the accuser, right? He is the Shatan, the Satan, and that's the, the accuser, and we see that in verse 10. Um, he accuses day and night. He's relentless. And in verse 15, he, it's the picture of he spews out accusations out of his mouth like putrid water, right? It's just this really gross picture. Uh, he's relentless, and he hassles God's people day and night. And how does he do this? Well, he slanders them. He accuses them. And he'll say things like, uh, and, and you and I have probably experienced this. Um, I've experienced this where, you know, I'll do something that is really dumb or I'll say something that's dumb or I'll think something I shouldn't be thinking. And, uh, you know, you just kind of hear this voice. It's just like, and you call yourself a Christian. And that's, and that's the kind of thing you do. That's the kind of thing you think about. Huh, some Christian you are, right? So he accuses you over and over again. It's also a warning that whenever you and I slander someone, we probably shouldn't because when we do slander someone, when we speak about them behind their back, we're actually participating in the strategy of the dragon, which is not a good thing. The second thing the dragon does is he deceives, and we see this in, in verse 9. 
that he is, he is the deceiver of the whole world, right? Um, the deceiver of the whole world. He deceives the whole world. And, and um, in fact, the dragon himself, he, he, or the evil one, he is deceived because he thinks he has more power than he really does. Remember when he tempts Jesus, he says, hey, you worship me and all the kingdoms of the world I'll give to you. He doesn't have that authority. Um, but he deceives you. He plays fast and loose with, with the truth. Uh, which is a reminder to us when you and I kind of bend the truth when we're talking to people, we have to be careful because we're playing his game, right? Thirdly, he tries to kill. He's, he's, he's a red dragon. He's as red as blood. He's violent. And he intimidates. He intimidates um, by making people afraid. Uh, he makes people afraid. They're afraid to die. I'll tell you, boy, think about how afraid we are uh, in this past year because of the pandemic. I mean, there's so much fear. And because we're afraid, we often as Christians will back off, we'll compromise because we're afraid. So that's what he does, eh? He, he accuses, he deceives, he kills, he make, makes us afraid of death. And so very quickly, how do we respond to this? How do we stand in the face of this evil when we know like his time is short, so how do we stand? How do we make it to the end? How do we teach our families how to stand? See, I got the families back in. Um, how do we overcome? Well, three ways. Well, in the face of accusations, we, are, we overcome by the blood of the lamb, right? We overcome by the blood of the lamb. And we read about that in this text, that we, they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb. And what does that mean? Well, it's when you're accused and you hear that voice is like, and you call yourself a Christian. You're like, yeah, I get it. I have sinned. I mess up. I, my heart goes in all sorts of wrong directions. I get it. It's true, but here's the thing. Because of Jesus, I know that I am forgiven. Because of Jesus, I am restored. I am renewed. I'm an adopted son of God. And I can boldly approach the throne of grace at any time, not because of anything I bring to the table, but because of the blood of Jesus. So there, you dragon, shut up, right? So that's one thing we can do. In the face of deception, what do we do? Well, we overcome by knowing the truth. And we need to know the truth. We need to speak the truth. We need to walk in the truth. Um, and I think the battle is fought over little issues. We need to you know, speak the truth, even in little things, right? And, and, and we need to be careful how much image control happens when we speak to one another, right? And the last thing is this. We overcome by holding on to this truth. Death has lost its sting. That death is not the worst thing we'll experience in life. It's the second to last thing that you and I will experience. You may experience death. We actually... I think the mortality rate's still at 100%, so I think we'll all experience death. Um, but death will not have the final word. The last thing is eternal life. And the truth, and this truth, despite the challenges that we face today, is what needs to shape us. And so, because if death has been defeated, then what do we need to be afraid of? And knowing that, we'll see us through to the end. And I want to leave us with a good old Martin Luther's uh, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. I'm not going to sing it, but I will quote it uh, just as we conclude. It's rich. This is what Luther says. 
And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little world, what one little word shall fail him. So let us live in the truth of the gospel. That's what Revelation chapter 12 is all about. The victory has been won. Yes, it's going to be difficult for a while, but we know that Jesus has won the decisive victory. The war has been won. And yes, we may suffer for a little while, but the final word will always be life. Okay? So let's pray. Oh, Father, what, a, what an amazing revelation that you have given to us through your word and through your son, Jesus Christ. Uh, we thank you for this. And we pray that we would live in light of the victory that your son has won on the cross through his life, death, and resurrection. And that we would know that because of this, we can boldly approach your throne, that we are adopted, that we are deeply loved. Um, we, can, we can commune with you, the, the, the author of the universe, and you are the God who speaks to us. And so let us hold on to these truths, and so that when we experience tribulation, which, which many, many of us are going through right now, that we would not be overwhelmed but we would live in the truth of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ. And I pray for those who are hearing this um, and whose hearts have been awakened and our hearts are filled with longing. Oh, could this be true? Draw them to yourself, I pray. And may they give their life to you and know the, the sweetness and the hope and the peace that comes from being reconciled to the author of the universe, the one whose very nature is love. That's our desire, and we lift this up to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks.